Good afternoon, and welcome to this edition of E-Radio. I'm your host, Neil Kiernan, and welcome to this show. Uh, if this is your first time tuning in, consider checking out my archives of other shows going all the way back to 2008. Um, please be aware that my political beliefs and understandings of things have changed considerably over the years, so you wouldn't necessarily agree with everything I have to say. But in general, um, I would say that the V-Radio episodes are generally geared sort of a left-leaning perspective um, with no direct party affiliations, uh, what I call a left-leaning independent. Um, but I've had documentary filmmakers, scientists, activists. I've had senators, congressmen, presidential candidates, um, and just a lot of good conversations with people, sometimes from all around the world. Uh, I still remember one of my favorite episodes was uh, an episode where I managed to get you know, people from all different countries in the Middle East, all on the same call to discuss the differences between the Middle East and our culture here in the United States. Um, you can check out the description of the show and you'll see that I have links to my Facebook groups, uh, Facebook page, my YouTube channel, which I don't use quite as much. I'm more of an audio guy, but you'll find interesting videos there. Um, if you want to, to support the show on Patreon, you can. I don't really expect anybody to do it right now, but there is a Patreon uh, set up for the show. And today, my returning guest is uh, Douglas Millette. Uh He's an engineer, and he at one time worked on the um, space shuttle project. Uh, he's been on my show many times in the past, you know, involved with just issues re you know, revolving around the Zeitgeist Movement, the Venus Project, and um, things along that line. So, Doug, uh, welcome back. Oh, one second. <laughs> they added this feature to V-Radio that automatically mutes all of my guests, and I keep forgetting to turn it off. <laughs> hey, Doug, welcome it's back. Good, it's a good feature to have until you forget that you have it. Very good. All right. Uh, I'm doing well. Uh, thanks, Neil, for, for having me back. I appreciate it. I know it's been a while, actually, a couple of years uh, since We've uh, had a conversation on this platform, but uh, a lot's gone on. A lot of things have changed. Uh, some, the foundations, I think, are still the same between the two of us, just the directions that we've gone to, uh, to push those have changed a little bit. But, hey, that's kind of what we're here to talk about, right? Yeah, that's, that's a large part of it for sure. Um, I think that uh, for me anyway, one of the reasons that I took time off was just that my kids – got involved in sports and when I was growing up my father was completely unsupportive of anything I wanted to do so when I had kids I decided I'm going to be the opposite of that so um, I mean the hard work has paid off my daughter is a multiple time national champion in the sport of wrestling and my son just got his first state title recently and beat a couple of national champions in his state bracket and then the the pandemic unfortunately canceled the national tournaments he was going to attend but um, you know, but either way now, one of the reasons I'm back is aside from the fact that I just don't like a lot of the media. And I mean, that was always a problem going all the way back to 2008, but even some of the progressive leaning media is still like leaving a lot to be desired. And, um, I wanted to try to contribute positively to that. And then in addition to that, with this pandemic going on, everybody's kind of locked in their houses or, you know, or at least, you know, considerably less you know, out and about than they used to be. And I have plenty of free time now to be able to go ahead and get back on the air. Uh, I've been involved recently with different efforts. Um, Jesse Ventura was considering running for the Green Party nomination. 
And I, you know, was one of the people who said that I was kind of finished with, I mean, not that I was ever a Democrat anyway, but after the Bernie Sanders stuff went down, I, you know, it was like, yeah, I'm done with this. The progressive movement never gets anything out of the Democratic Party. You know, the analogy that I drew was that um, it's like the progressives within the party are like the, the abused wife that slapped around and told to shut up during the primary. And then you know, when the general election comes around, they show up with candy and flowers and beg us not to leave. And they promise it'll be better next time. <laughs> it happens every four years. You know, that's why I've only been loosely involved. And I mean, honestly, a lot of it, you know, as I was dealing with it, particularly struggling with some of the people in the third party movement um, and just how I hate to, I mean, I don't want to be cruel, but I'm going to be uh, <laughs> just, they're stupid people. There are a lot of people that are involved in third party politics that are immature, don't understand, you know, the, the actual things that they're discussing and they're content to kind of have their little, um, conventions and their little clubs that nobody cares about. And, you know, they're very nasty to people who come from outside of it. You know, I, I dealt with the same thing back in 2008 with Senator Mike Gravel when he was joining the Libertarian Party. Basically, you get these people who they're so fixated on their popularity contest nomination for candidates that'll get less than 1% of the vote, et cetera, et cetera. You know, but it all just kind of reminded me, you know, of Peter Joseph's words in Zeitgeist Addendum where he goes, reject the political system you know, any notion that this system is going to yield anything to us is an insult to our intelligence. And those words kind of rang back into my mind, you know, and that's well, kind of I where I'm at right now. Go yeah, ahead. I'm I sorry. That's all right. I don't necessarily go that far, the baby with the bathwater, um, but you're right about third parties is, and for me, it's a, a fundamental lack of understanding of, of how the process works the kind of democracy we have, um, that, uh, sorry, but third parties will never, ever, ever be relevant in this system. And there's a reason why. It's not some conspiracy. There, there is actually, in political science, there are very few hard laws. Like if you go to the hard sciences versus the soft sciences, if you go to the hard sciences of physics, chemistry, math, etc., you get equations that are very deterministic and within X, Y, and Z variables, you will get the same answer. You can predict orbits. You can launch spaceships. You can, you know, create all these amazing gadgets that we've created because there is reproducibility and reliability in the foundations of the formulas. It's very predictable. The social sciences, soft sciences, are not so much. There aren't formulas for how people are going to react all the time with reliability in any given circumstance because, well, humans, right? So <laughs> there's a lot well, of right. I mean, it's like you can be a weatherman and predict the weather. You're still not going to be right all the time. Like I do think sociology can to some degree predict patterns, but there's a random element that always has to be you know, included in your thoughts about it. It's a probability thing. It's a probability game. And so, you know, with a much higher degree of certainty, there are things that are predictable. But in the political science, there aren't as much, except for one uh, that, we, that I learned. It's called Duverger's Law. Duverger's Law effectively says, if you have a first-past-the-post, winner-take-all system of election, which is what the United States has, it doesn't matter how many political parties you start off with, it will always reduce down to two. You will get a bipolar system. 
period. That's the way it works. And there's a, there are mathematical reasons why. And there's videos on YouTube about Duverger's law and how the first-past-the-post winner-take-all system automatically reduces down to a two-party system. And third parties will never, ever gain an advantage in that kind of a system. Once the two have been established, the best you can do is start to mold and shape the direction of the two. Aside from violent revolution or massive political revolution, which is very difficult in an entrenched system, it usually has to go violent, and I don't. nobody wants that. Well, some people might because they're crazy, but I don't want that as a nonviolent person. So the only thing you can do is change the format from, for example, first-past-the-post to rank-choice voting. Right. Where you create the automatic runoff scenario, which allows for multiple parties to actually have greater influence in the outcome of the election and be elected. Uh, Ireland has a rank-choice voting system. Uh, The state of Maine uh, recently implemented rank-choice voting for their lower offices in the political realm. So I think... If we really want to have a greater voice from more divergent philosophies than just Republican and Democrat, and if we want other ideas on the table that aren't pigeonholed into those two sides, then we need to change and work on changing away from the first past the post, the winner take all, and move towards the rank choice system. At least that's a step in the right direction. Uh, does that mean rank choice is perfect? Well, no, of course not. Um, Not everything is perfect, but it is a hell of a lot better if you want more inclusion. And uh, there was a story that I heard on the radio about a year or so ago that covered uh, an election in in Ireland. And uh, and one of the things that came out of it was that (laughs) the political election uh, landscape is also nicer when it's ranked choice voting. The politicians, you you lose a lot of that aggressive, hard, negative advertising and negative rancor that that we currently have here because everybody knows that they're going to be ranked. And they don't want to piss everybody off and be ranked 7, 8, 9, 10 down the line. So they end (laughs) up playing nicely with each other. They aren't complete douchebags. Uh, and they're very careful with their messaging because even if they're not going to be ranked 1, they at least want to be two or three because when the runoff happens, if, if enough of it happens, somebody who's ranked two or three might take out a one. It depends on how it, how it plays up. So you end up getting nicer political competition <laughs> out of it, uh, which was kind of an unexpected but I think well-needed uh, uh, result. Well, yeah, and I would say that um, democratic systems in general that are truly direct democratic in a lot of ways also can produce some beneficial effects. And um, ranked choice voting is definitely one of the I I think I've seen actually the video series you might be talking about, you know, describing the first past the post and how it works. And, you know, I think that um, I did. I actually talked about this on previous broadcasts because Senator Gravel was an advocate for trying to add a constitutional amendment to allow for national level referendums. And a lot of the countries that have these systems are actually among the freer and happier countries. Um, And in some cases, like certain critical things, you literally can't do in those countries without a referendum. So for example, in Switzerland, if you want to go to war, 
you have to have a referendum. Um, now, mind you, there are still people who are in a position to give orders if you're trying to defend the country. But as far as something like, say, Iraq, where there's no direct threat to Switzerland, um, you know, they had to have a referendum to approve the action. And if a war ever becomes too unpopular, then the people have a right to put together the petition and then get a referendum together and get out of it. The other thing that they do is recall elections, which is you end up in a situation like at one point, George Bush Jr., I want to say, dropped below like 30% approval. You don't have to put up with the Joker for another three years. You just referendum and then, you know, have another election. You know, those things in, in general tend to change the attitudes of people for sure. Um, the original Progressive Party back in 1912, formed by Teddy Roosevelt, um, had a lot of direct Democratic, you know, um, issues that they were presenting within their platform. Um, and, you know, so it's not perfect either, because sometimes the majority can be wrong, too. But you don't end up in this situation where, like, just a very small elite of people is making all the decisions. And, you know, when, and I've talked about this in a lot of episodes, so I won't go as far into it, like, especially since I've talked about it a lot recently. But um, when you go back to the founding of our country, one of the things that Senator Gravel encountered when he was researching, because when you're going to do a constitutional amendment, like, I don't know if you've ever listened to uh, the Supreme Court justices debating something, they usually would end up in a scenario where they have to literally read letters being written between the various founding fathers because there wasn't enough context in the Constitution itself. So like when they were debating the D.C. gun ban, for example, you know, they had to read letters between people like Madison and, you know, um, Hamilton and Jefferson to determine what they really meant. And so he was reading it. And that's when he kind of found out, you know, as he's reading all these, you know, things being given back and forth, that the big reason for against democracy was that the colonies were originally governed by town hall meeting referendums. There wasn't, you know, you know there wasn't any like hard, rigid person you elect to do all of your decision making. And as a result, because of that system, they were having a hard time ratifying the Constitution because some of the colonies wanted slavery and some of the colonies did not. Um, you guys can listen to more about that if you're interested in that topic. I have a show called, um, I think it was called Bernie, Tulsi, and Yang. The system is not broken. It's working as intended. Um, very good episode. Probably my favorite of the ones I've done recently. Go ahead, Doug. No, I think you're right. Uh, the system's not broken. It's doing what it was built to do. So if you don't like it, you got to you know, change the system. But you can't abstain from it. You can't just run away with your fingers in your ears going, this system sucks. I'm going to go live in the woods on a commune. Yeah, that really does save <laughs> shit. That doesn't, that doesn't help anything at all. That, uh, that I never have understood, nor will I ever understood that kind of thinking. I think the best way to change the system is to dive into that thing and start, you know, wreaking havoc in a positive way, but, you know, make Well, it yeah, easy. I just think we can't fix it if we don't diagnose the problem, and I think a lot of people are not even really aware of it. We are hit with pretty hard with propaganda about democracy as being two wolves and a sheep picking what's for dinner, because it was in their best interest when they were founding this country to spread that thought because they were concerned about democracy because democracy wasn't allowing the plutocrats to run the country. And, you know, we tend to forget that the majority of the founding fathers were all fantastically wealthy, you know, and landowning slaveholders. Right. Some of them were literally even quoted as saying, I think it was Madison's quote as saying the wealth of the nation should rule the nation. And 
that's why we, you know, so they convinced everybody instead of doing these town hall meetings, they decided instead to convince everybody that democracy is evil, tyranny of the majority, mob rule, um, and to give up their right to be involved in the referendum process to instead elect delegates to represent them, as if the mob is for some reason not suited to make its own rules, but it is suited to pick someone else. Those two concepts never made any sense to me. And Senator Gravel pointed out that it was kind of a crazy hypocrisy that is built in the system and always has been. And, and, who, and who are those people? Well, they're usually wealthy too, because obviously a farmer isn't going to leave his farm to run for the position of delegate to the Constitutional Convention. It's not going to be a blacksmith. It's not going to be a cobbler. You know, it's going to be some guy who already has residual income, you know, and can leave his plantation. You know, those are going to be the kind of people. And now instead of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention, we just have wealthy people or people who have already sold out to wealthy people to choose from on our ballots. You know, and I agree with you that, you know, and when I say not, you know, I I obviously wasn't saying we just go so far as to just go all the way out to the edge. But I understand what Peter was thinking when he said, you know, just forget this. This is garbage. Because it is very difficult. It's very daunting because our, our sociological system at this point is all geared around it. But I think that one of the things, though, that, you know, this whole situation has started to change is that, you know, I remember for many years discussing with Jack Fresco, I was like, so why is it that you feel it has to be a collapse? And he's like, he's like, it's not that I want it to be a collapse. It's not that I think that, you know, that that's the only way that humans can change. It's just that in my experience, being as how he was around for over 100 years before he died, is that people don't really tend to seriously evaluate the systems that they're in until those systems are put in in jeopardy, until their personal lives are affected. And that's why I've noticed this really funny transition that's going on because I have, uh, on my personal Facebook, I have a lot of conservative friends because for whatever reason, a lot of conservatives are involved in the sport of wrestling. I I don't think that it's a guarantee, but like just as soon as political things came up, like I would just, I realized just how many Trump supporters I have on my personal Facebook feed, how many Republicans I have. And, you know, the only way I had, it was funny is that all I had to do to find out how many of them were there was post like say one pro Bernie Sanders, you know, link. And then all of a sudden I knew, um, you know, so anyway, um, you know, and I would talk to them and, you know, when, and it was funny because I got to watch the contrast, which was that before COVID-19, um, there was all of this, you know, anti, you know, socialist talk, you know, if any kind of handouts are bad, you know, that's all bad, it's all wrong, you know, and so then COVID-19, within a very brief period of time, I'm watching as all of a sudden everybody's attitude about handouts changes dramatically um, oh, because yeah. they're in a situation where they are being threatened, essentially. That's what changes the, the whole attitude about all of it. Um, was that they were put in a scenario where the system that they thought was so great got dropped on its ear. You know, like one of the major arguments, for example, was about Medicare for all. And one of the uh, people who I had on my Facebook, um, you know, she was arguing just, you know, viciously against it. She's like, well, I have great health care that I, you know, um, fought with with my employer. It's part of my contract. You know, I, he wants to take away my employer-based, you know, healthcare, and I want to keep it. And and you know, so the funny thing is, she, you know, she stuck to that perspective. And then now, because her job, you know, she got laid off, that she doesn't have any healthcare, and she's literally asking me how she could sign up for Medicaid 
because she doesn't know how or whatever. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. Your attitude just changed dramatically because of the situation. I mean, I didn't tell her any of that, but that's what was going on in my well, head. People Go ahead. don't pay attention to the slaps them in the face. They, they don't pay attention to anything until that particular issue jumps up and bites them in the butt. And that, you're right. And that's like, you know, I love my insurance. No, you don't. You don't love your insurance. You love your doctor, the person that you probably see once a month or whatever, the, the relationships that you've cultivated over the years with this particular office and, you know, Nurse Jenny that you see all the time and the administrative um, person who checks you in and all that. Sure, but that's not Aetna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. <laughs> no, that's, that's the people you see every day. Um, and, and the whole idea that – and that's one of the biggest arguing argument points for Medicare for All is the fact that your health insurance should not be tied to your job because what if you lose your job? What if something happens? And then you start looking at the gig economy where a lot of people aren't even employed in the traditional workplace as we used to be in the 1950s. We have an archaic system based on archaic foundations that are no longer relevant. That's one of the things I talk about when I did lectures, and I'm going to be getting back into that. I'm in the process of moving back down to Florida. Currently, I'm in Rhode Island. We came up here for a couple of years, but we are tired of Rhode Island winters. So we are <laughs> going, back, going back down to Florida. My wife has a good job opportunity, a transfer with the company and all that. So, you know, we're going back to where we got a lot of friends and family in the central Florida area, and that's where we're, we're returning back to that that place. But once we get somewhat resettled, I'm going to try and ramp back up my public speaking again because I think it's very important for people to hear the disconnect between this narrative that we've been given that is very old and rooted in some archaic foundations that are no longer relevant and becoming less and less relevant, uh, specifically around human labor input, physical labor and mental labor. Um, The entire system is predicated on people selling themselves, mental and physical, to the system to justify their existence. Yet, at the same time, we're inventing a load of technologies that are eviscerating the need to use human, physical, and mental labor for a lot of things. Not everything, but a lot of things. And so what happens when your entire socioeconomic foundation is predicated on A and B, and then you start chipping away significantly at A and B? And we wonder why there's a disconnect. So I want to really get back into illustrating and showing and, and showing those points and bringing the facts to the table of here's exactly where we were then, here's where we are now. Look at the numbers. Simple, basic stuff in front of your face uh, to get people to at least, you're going to have people jump up and think that what we've got now is still the best thing ever because, you know, a lot of fallacy arguments, my favorite one being capitalism is what has eradicated poverty around the world. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. That's, you know, capitalism spawns innovation. There used to be a saying, necessity is the mother of invention. People invent and innovate out of a need to fill a gap. Capitalism doesn't do that. Necessity does that. Capitalism determines what ideas actually get funded. And newsflash, a lot of the times the best ideas aren't the ones that are funded. 
especially if they disrupt the people who really don't want to be disrupted. Right. So no, that's, that, that's something Andrew that Yang be, pointed out quite a bit. I don't know if you studied any of his work, but he was a big universal basic income guy. But he also did a lot of talking about automation on the presidential you know, race and during the debates. And I'm glad that he did. I read his book. He, he definitely knows what he's talking about. But I think that what he was trying to get across to people is that this automation problem is a lot closer than people think. And, you know, he kept bringing up the truck drivers and everybody kind of ignores it. But he also tried to bring up he's like, guys, the truck drivers actually represent an enormous number of people that are about to get automated out of work. Like yeah. we don't realize this time. Like he pointed out, it's actually like apparently the most populated job for blue collar people in the United States is truck drivers. And um, they're working on, they've already actually had a couple of voyages now. I mean, maiden voyages, I guess would be the word to put it with AI trucks do all of the freeway driving and they've yeah, managed Tesla to have one drive one. completely across the United States. Yeah. Tesla has one. Volvo has one. Volkswagen has one. There's a lot of manufacturers that have long haul trucking auto, uh, robot trucks. Right. And that's that people don't realize what that's going to amount to like and what it'll do. Because as Andrew Yang pointed out, these people are not in a situation where they can just re-educate themselves, um, nope. you know, and they can't just become entrepreneurs. And Andrew Yang came at it from the perspective of just being a, I mean, he is a capitalist, but he also re realizes that just unbridled capitalism doesn't work. And he also pointed out that it, you have to have human-centered capitalism. If we're having capitalism just for the sake of capitalism, and we're not you know, looking at the, the cost of, you know, to humanity of the capitalism that has become this, this thing unto itself that, that we don't, we've lost control of. That basically is what it amounts to. It's like you said, it doesn't, you know, capitalism doesn't, that's the other thing they always point out is that capitalism is what brought us all these innovations, you know, but as Roxanne Meadows pointed out, you know, the only things that get innovated in capitalist systems essentially are the ones that will make people money. And if there's anything that needs to be done, but no money can be made doing it, nothing will be done. You know, and she's right that that's exactly how it works. I mean, there, there's no motivation to innovate anything that helps anybody who's not on the top, you know, and you, you see that also just within, you know, the, the mindset of the politicians themselves on the top of things, you know, is that they, 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 their first motive like the first group of people, from what I remember correctly now, is that the ones who got the first bailout money was the oil industry because they need our help, apparently. Then they prioritized all of the major corporations that wanted money, and then they would just kind of throw crumbs at the poor. And I don't know if you ever watched Bo of the Fifth Column, but I really like his videos. I think you'd really like him, too. But, you know, he pointed out that if they had just went ahead and given money to the people on the bottom, everybody on top would have been fine. You know, because the money would trickle up like that's the, the reason that the economy is in jeopardy the way it is now is that people at the bottom are not spending money because they don't know if they're going to have any, you know, especially the ones who've lost their jobs. So if no money's moving in commerce, then nobody up top makes any money either. And this is something that uh, like during the recession, it was the same problem, which is that the people at the top of the one percenters essentially now, rather than being, you know, Christian, religious Morable, they're all like weaned on Ayn Rand and her attitude about how poor people are parasites and you know they're the villains in all of her books and 
you know, that that mentality is what's now, you know, essentially occupied by the people on top. And not that I think that religion is this, you know, is by any means the, the solution. It doesn't change the fact that that's like the missing cog in American capitalism is that there used to be a time when there was this counterbalance, you know, belief system that told them that being, you know, giving Christmas bonuses was the right thing to do, that taking care of your employees was the right thing to do. And now there's no, there's no reason for that. They don't, they don't care about that. Now they're trying to get rid of as many of them as they can. And the, the counterbalance usually is that they say like, you know, you see all the memes all the time, you know, against raising minimum wage, for example, you know, where it says that, you know, well, if you do that, you know, you know, you're, you know, like rather, you know, Oh, $15 an hour, meet your replacement. And they'll push up, you know, they'll put up a picture of a McDonald's kiosk or whatever. And I'm like, if you think that like they only just got around now to looking into that technology, you're not, you have no idea because they've been looking into that from day one. You know, that, that's why those companies are willing and looking for people who are only going to make 725, you know, and it's just that now it's just gotten around to being implemented. And unfortunately, that's the other thing that I noticed is that, you know, with the COVID situation, the, the impetus to try to look into automation only goes up. Because now they're all looking at, man, I had to close down all my factories. Well, what do we do to get rid of those jobs? You know, you know and that situation is only going to be, you know, basically is only going to continue to get worse. And I think that that was the other element that actually I was pointing out was that the COVID system, you know, situation more or less created a circumstance that exposed just how bad capitalism can be. Because for one, I've noticed like a near, I mean, psychopathic effect that it's had on people that I know, like there are people that I know personally know who know who I am, who know who my kids are. Like my daughter uh, technically, you know, could is high risk because she has a breathing condition that that problem seems to be going away, thankfully. But for a long time, she was just having an issue where her, her airways would close involuntarily. And they know full well that she would be high risk, but they're so fixated on that capitalist thinking that they're kind of like to the point where they're willing to just say, well, you know, we're going to have to just get things going again because we can't just allow this to happen. And, you know, the economy is too important. We got to open it back up. And what's really ironic to me about that is that I end up drawing parallels to one of the big things that is constantly said about communism was that supposedly millions of people were killed specifically to prop up the communist economy and that that's why communism is evil. And that's why we can't do that. You know, now that we have this COVID thing, if we got to sacrifice millions of people to keep the economy going, well, that's just what we're going to have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Got to keep the machine going, right? I think one of the biggest, two, two of the biggest disconnects with capitalism with our our current economic foundation is a lack of morality and ethics built into the system. We talk about these things. We talk about morality and ethics and we can have all kinds of wonderful philosophical discussions about where morality comes from and blah, blah, blah. But fundamentally, if somebody is suffering and it brings you pain, because we are empathetic creatures for the most part, there are people who aren't. Those are psychopaths and sociopaths. We have terms for those people who don't feel empathy. But for the most part, most people are empathetic, and if they see someone hurting, if they see a dog hurting, if they see a cat, if they see a person, it makes them feel bad. So then the right thing to do is to have a society where that doesn't happen. But we don't have an economic system that factors in 
morality and ethics. The nonprofit sector is basically what was created, as far as I'm concerned anyway, in my opinion. The nonprofit center serves as the moral and ethical compass for a system that doesn't give a shit about morality or ethics when it comes to the economic manipulation of resources. And that's and, and it's a psychosis. This whole country is, is you're talking about something or you have mentioned something that is very apropos, this idea that people are willing to sacrifice life in order to keep a construct, something we literally made up, going. Like money made it up. Trade and agreements and all these things made them up. Everything is made up, and it's usually made up by a very small percentage of people who want things to be tailored in a very specific kind of way to benefit them the most and placate everybody else so that everybody thinks they're, you know, one miracle away from being a capitalist themselves. That's the other thing. People who temporarily embarrassed millionaires. You ever heard that yeah, term? Oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of one of the many ways of saying it. Yeah, temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And yet, you know, you've got all these people running around saying, "I'm a capitalist." Do you own anything? These a lot of people in this country think they are capitalists. They're not. They don't own anything. Capitalists are the owners. Everybody else is the worker. So you're a worker bee in the system, man. You're not a capitalist. You're a subject of the system, not an owner of it. And even somebody who has a small business is massively beholden, debt-wise and everything else, to so many other people that they're not autonomous either. They're just as much subject to the system as everybody else, even if they're a small business owner. But the ones who are raking in hundreds of millions, who can afford to just let it all go for a couple of months and they'll be still perfectly fine, that's where the disconnect comes in. That's, that's where you really see who's got the system by the balls and who's having their faces rubbed in it. Yeah, I definitely have noticed that effect too because a lot of these people that, you know, that's something that Bo of the Fifth Column pointed out was that he said that a lot of these people that are demanding that everything get reopened prematurely are people who um, are struggling now and have never been struggling before. You know, they, yeah. they're now experiencing what that's like or being reminded what that's like. Um, frequently, you know, when my I'm talking to people, freedoms. go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just like, my freedoms are being destroyed. I was like, no, you're being temporarily inconvenienced. Your freedoms are not being destroyed. Well, right. That's well, that's the other thing that I found really ironic. You know, when we talk about the founding fathers earlier was that they keep posting pictures of different founding fathers saying things about freedom and and the quotes are accurate, but they're also those are not being taken in the context of context of a pandemic. So I did a little research and I found out that um, during the, you know, the the time period of you know 1776, when all those people are alive and involved in making decisions. They had a smallpox epidemic. Depending on where you were at, um, determined a lot about how it was handled. But in many cases, if there was a smallpox case in your town, your town was locked down. And I don't just mean locked down within the town. I mean, nobody's allowed to leave. And you can go into the town, but if you do, you're not coming back out. And that was enforced by armed guards. And if you thought that you were just going to go run around the, the country with smallpox, you'd be shot. Like it, that's how you know basically directly draconian things were back then. Now, mind you, 
you know, diseases were considerably more dangerous to people back then. But the idea that, you know, Thomas Jefferson would, you know, be all about like infected people running around spreading, a, you know, um, smallpox to everybody in his plantation, not a chance. You know, that that's not how they operated. And that's, you know, and so people don't bother to look into the context of what it is that they're discussing, but they, they definitely would not want to deal with a pandemic, you know, with those guys in charge, because they were very clear on this. It's like, you know, and that was the way that, you know, um, basically quarantine was not like anywhere near what it is now. People are upset because they're being told they can only go to Kroger and get their groceries and they're not allowed to get, you know, like that's what they're concerned about. You know, it, they literally like if your town, anybody, one person was infected and found to be, then they locked down your they basically locked down and um, cordoned off your entire section of society. And you weren't allowed to come out until it was over. You know, that's that's the way that those things were handled back then. And people nowadays, especially the ones that, um, you know, are talking about their rights. This is what I was talking about, also about that psychopathic underbelly of society that you know, usually you can't get capitalists to, to, to spit this kind of stuff out. But when you're in a situation like this, it starts to become very clear, which is that at the very core of what they think, the strong shall survive, the weak shall perish, you know, and that's just the way things are. And sometimes, especially when you get these people walking around these protests that are going on right now, you know, you can occasionally get somebody who will just go ahead and blurt that out. Like one of them was, you know, well, the people who are in danger were the people who are already compromised anyway, you know, basically just saying that's too bad for you. You know, she's like, I, you know, that's too bad for you, you know, but uh, we need to move on our economy. You know, essentially that's the way they're putting it. That's why I drew the parallel to saying that, you know, um, that they basically don't realize that they're essentially making the same decision that they feel that Stalin was making um, when he, you know, ordered millions of people to die, that to say that to prop up the, you know, the capitalist economy, well, millions of people are just going to have to die. Uh, and some of them even try to sugarcoat it. Like there was that lieutenant governor from Texas, you know, said that, you know, the grandparents would voluntarily sacrifice their lives to make sure that their grandkids could have capitalism, you know, and he didn't use those exact words. He had a very like weird way of putting it, but, you know, um, you know, the, the point is, is that they don't, it, it, when you really peel it away, it, it ends up becoming a situ situation where you bring out the worst in humanity and, you know, in ways that uh, everybody knew, I knew this ahead of time going into it, you know, but it, they don't realize that that's where it's at until they're stuck in a situation where capitalism is being threatened. That's where you get a circumstance where you see the ugliness. That's also what leads to the wars you know, that are caused by capitalism. And, and in addition to the fact that, you know, there's still people starving and being murdered by capitalism. What usually ends up happening is, is that effect is externalized outside of your country and just goes on somewhere else, whether it's Africa, you know, yeah. any of these South American countries. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. And on the, on the political front, um, one of the things that, that I railed against constantly when I was getting my master's degree for uh, international relations was they, one of the things they tell you is don't question uh, when you're looking at a political philosophy, liberalism, realism, um, constructionism, et cetera. When you're looking at these different forms of political theory, political thought, um, don't look at the assumptions that are made. Look at the results of what the Hello? Uh, system, the theory Hello, produces. This is Diana from 
Detroit Health Department that. calling <laughs> on behalf of the Coronavirus Community mm-hmm. Care Network. Yeah, may I speak may with Julia? Yeah. Yeah. You have the wrong number. <laughs> Sorry about that. that. Somebody actually That's called me in the middle of that. Um, that was weird. Yeah, I was just saying, because I could hear that. I heard all of that. Oh. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I thought I had muted my mic. Sorry about that. Please continue. No, you did not. <laughs> but anyway, um, so as I was saying, um, the, you're, not, you're told not to question the assumptions that are made about how a theory is built. You're just supposed to look at how well a theory predicts a particular outcome. And one of the biggest problems I have with that is, like, that's bullshit. You should always question the assumptions of how a theory is built in the same way that you would question the assumptions of how any scientific endeavor was done. So why all of a sudden do the social sciences and political science get away with having theories based on terrible assumptions simply because they may or may not work most of the time? And this is what I told them. I was like, what you've created is a self-fulfilling prophecy system of education and regurgitation. You tell people this, you know, realism, you know, Leviathan and Hobbes and life is cruel, brutish, and short, and then you get people who learn that. Then they grow up and get into positions of power with that philosophy as their underpinning, and then they behave that way with their policy prescriptions. And you wonder why we have, whether it's Republican or Democrat, they all learn the same foundation. They might not be realists, they could be liberal, but a lot of them are still carrying the same foundations because they've all, we've all studied the same stuff. And that's the thing. It doesn't matter what school you go to. Political science is political science. So all the books are well, basically the same. All the information is effectively the same. But it's wrong in the sense that these assumptions look at human behavior outcome, not causal effect. What actually makes people behave in a particular way, and then derive your philosophy from that. So when you're talking about things like why capitalists would be cool with sacrificing a percentage of the population to keep the machine going, because they've been indoctrinated with the Darwinian, which Darwin didn't actually really say, but the Darwinian uh, bastardization of survival of the fittest, kill or be killed kind of philosophy, and that if you're not squashing somebody else to rise to the top, then you're not trying hard enough. That's basically the <laughs> underpinning philosophy of the system. And anybody who actually tries to treat people fairly is not going to rise to the top because they're just going to maintain. A mom and pop can pay all their employees great, and they're not going to be able to grow to a second or third chain store because they're not making enough profit to do it. But if they slashed everybody's salaries and they cut corners and they cut medical costs and they did everything they could to cut all the financial corners they could, then they could open that second store and keep doing it now they've got a third store and keep doing it now they've got a chain and keep doing it and now they're Walmart. Why? Because they cut every corner they could and they slashed everything they could to maximize profit and screw everybody else along the way. That's how you rise to the top. It's immoral and unethical, but that's how you do it. So if you actually play nice, you're not going to become one of those multi-billionaires. Look at Bezos for crying out loud. He's massively wealthy. And his companies, in general, are pieces of shit when it comes to how they treat people. It's well documented. Well, yeah, and that's a system that it glorifies that, too. And when you were talking about like how some of the sciences are not held to those standards, the same thing is true of economists. 
you know, like I, I looked back at my debate with Stefan Molyneux and he just kept repeating what Mises said over and over again. And I just kept repeating back to him. I'm like, okay, but Mises was giving his opinion. He didn't use any kind of scientific basis for what he was saying at all. And that was never enough for Stefan because it's the same thing with most anarcho-capitalists I talked to, which ironically don't realize that Mises thought anarchists were crazy, by the way. Um, but anyway, it was just that they, they accept his opinion as gospel when he openly admits in his own words that he didn't base his ideas about free market capitalism on any kind of data or evaluation of any trends. It was just his opinion. And, you know, there's some some of the things that he you know came about with, you know, when he talks about free markets and competition, you know, are definitely true. Anecdotally, there are also a lot of other aspects of it that are just not. And the idea that the best things are always going to rise to the top in that system. It's just not true. It's what you know, because you get to a situation where profit that that's the one constant. Things will gravitate towards profit. There's no question about that. But whether or not profit is actually good for humans, that's that's definitely not by any means a rule. Um, you know, and the people who the humans that are a little more important than the other humans because they have more money inevitably do better. And if there's going to be any decisions for the sake of profit that might hurt some other people, like whether it be decisions to dump toxic waste somewhere, you know, destroy jobs in one area or another, you know, those kinds of decisions are made without even thinking, you know, and that's essentially what COVID situation from when I see, you know, the profit motive being applied is that we have employers who like, uh, I actually had on a call, not a call, an episode recently, I took the audio of a YouTube video that somebody had put up because he was concerned that it was going to be deleted. And I stuck it in one of my episodes um, and it was specifically a conference call between uh, the corporation and the store managers of GameStop. And you basically got to listen to these corporate people openly say, yeah, we know we didn't give you guys any personal protection equipment. Yes, we know that you don't have any sanitizer. We're going to work on getting that to you as soon as possible. You know, but basically the, the conversation revealed very heavily, you know, at some point, some of the store managers literally even just said, like, what, um, is there a point where that we're going to put people before profits? Because, you know, this is too dangerous, you know, um, and the the very sterilized political answers that were given back to them by these corporate people, because GameStop was a company that was actually in a lot of trouble before all this, because people are not really going to retail stores anymore. And then because everybody was being told, hey, you might be locked in your house for two years, all of a sudden GameStop got an enormous upsurge in business. So they're doing everything in their power to maintain that, you know, and they didn't, you know, care one iota about the negatives. And, you know, at one point they they said, well, if you choose not to work, obviously we're not going to pay you, you know, um, was more or less what they said, you know, as if people yeah. have a choice, you know, and that that's one of the the points about all this, I don't think people realize is that all it took was something like this. I mean, we're lucky. That's the other thing. We are really lucky that this is not a pandemic of a really serious illness. Like, because I, I did research into the Spanish flu. Some people would get the Spanish flu and they'd be dead in 48 hours. Even young people, you know, if we had something like that now, yeah, I do think that people would come around to the lockdowns a lot. Bill would be idiots out there, you know, that, would be demanding their rights, you know, and, and spreading something like this without even thinking about it. That that's one of the things that I think bothers me the most about it. It's just people don't recognize that just how lucky we are that this isn't something even more serious than it is, 
the, the other aspect that I found was that people didn't look ahead enough to realize that, okay, so what is the issue? The issue is, is that we could fill up our ICUs. ICU space is not infinite, not just about the beds, but also about the equipment that, equipment that is used in an ICU, the personnel that man an ICU, and, you know, the, the need for respirators or, you know, ventilators, et cetera. You know, so they don't recognize that if they spread this thing and then we fill up our ICUs, anybody who needs an ICU is not going to be able to get one. And that was unfortunately one of the only ways that I could get people to frame this in a way that they would start to understand was when I figured out a way to demonstrate to them that it could also affect them. When it's just like obese people and people with breathing issues and asthma, well, that's their problem. You know, but when I pointed out, okay, so if you fill up the ICUs, if your wife goes into labor and has complications, she's dead. Your child is dead. You get in a car accident and you need an ICU, you're dead. You get a gunshot wound, you're dead. You get a knife wound, you're dead. Anything that would put you in an ICU, if we don't have ICU space available, you're dead. Like yeah, that's, it, that's the reason why we were concerned and why we had to slow everything down. You know, and they, don't, they didn't even think about what I was talking about until I framed it in such a way that would actually directly affect them. That's exactly. People don't care unless you can paint the picture to where it directly affects their lives. It's one of the reasons why people say all politics is local. You can talk about national stuff all you want at a, at a high level, but until you can whittle it down to show the daily effect in somebody's life, they generally don't care because out of sight, out of mind. Unfortunately, that's just kind of how the human brain is wired. That's how people think, which is why you have to be very meticulous and precise in messaging on how things affect people in their day-to-day -day, instead of always big picture. It's one, of the, it's one of the problems I had with the movements that I used to be involved with that I'm no longer really connected to, but the movements were far too ideological and not enough practical. It's like, okay, we want to make the world a better place. We have a philosophy. We have ideas. We have a lot of evidence to support this idea. Now, how do we engage the everyday citizen to motivate and move them to affect change? You have to show them how it will affect their day-to-day -day life. And you all, then you have to engage the political process to change public policy so that the laws and rules that govern society are shifted so that those outcomes can manifest. That's how it works. Without laws and rules, we're just running around like a bunch of crazy people. So not so big on the anarchy people. They drive they piss me off to be perfectly honest. You know, all these Well they just have really unrealistic people. ideas. It's and well, they exactly don't but they they just I they go off to the side as far as I'm concerned. Reasonable people understand that laws and rules are around for a reason. And and so if you don't like them, then manipulate and change them. That's how that works. Uh, but if you don't have an organizational structure and a plan and a mission to go do something, like put a space shuttle in orbit, if you don't have a framework to operate in, then you're not going to get any traction and you're not going to have any success because you're not going to be able to do what you need to do in an organized, efficient manner. And that's one of the reasons why I kind of stepped away from certain things because I was really tired of a bunch of, you know, vacuous crap being spewed on a regular basis and this, you know, anti-leadership, anti-organization front 
when it's if if the world was better organized when it came to global communication and information sharing, a la like the RBE, for example, even though I resource-based economy to me is kind of a silly term. All economies are based on resources. You know, <laughs> it's you know, it's just how you manage those resources. Different different economic um, rules apply, and that changes how the resources are managed. But they're all based in uh, resources. But anyway, if we were following the kind of like the term I made up, a more techno egalitarian, you know, uh, technological distribution in a way such that equilibrium and egalitarian uh, systems are, are around the world, we would have been able to spot this virus in a heartbeat, most likely, not necessarily guaranteed, but most likely massively isolate its spread if information was being shared properly. But we all know that because of national secrets and pride and all these other things, that China does a really good job of hiding anything negative that goes on so that the world thinks they're just amazing because they have a lot of national pride and ego built into their cute little communist system. So they don't want everybody to know what's really going on. But if they did, there would have been a stronger likelihood of curtailing how fast this spread. And also, if all the countries were sharing information properly and there wasn't this, you know, oh, we've got this, the a la Trumpism, you know, oh, don't worry, we've got this. Oh, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. We got this. And then, bam, we get hit by it. If people would check their stupid egos for a moment and actually use the data and information in front of them, we would have been significantly more prepared for this. And I don't think it would be anywhere near what it is. And so, for so I definitely want to. Uh, oh yeah, I definitely want to get into that topic. Um, we have a caller who's been waiting here for a little bit. So, um, caller uh, from the two o. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Can take calls. <laughs> yeah, I can take calls. <laughs> but that's what I'm going to try to do. I guess we'll see. Um, caller from the two o seven area code. You are on the air. Welcome to V Radio. Hello. Caller from 207? Okay. I'm turning off their mic. Anyway, yeah, sometimes uh, somebody might even just, they, they were sitting there for a while, so they may have just went AFK. But anyway, yeah, I can take callers. Um, I usually I used to do it mostly via Skype, but uh, like I said, Skype's been having problems interacting with Blog Talk. Um, so anyway, uh, if anybody would like to call in, I don't mind taking callers. Just be aware that, uh, you know, in the event that you're disruptive, you're gone. <laughs> and uh, when you talk about the rules thing, I remember that specific argument quite a bit. Um, and it was one of the the core issues was, you know, in regards to moderating our media platforms and um, stuff like that. And it just that people wanted to have a non-authoritarian system. And what I've found is that the anarchists more or less find their way to every group and try to more or less like a virus inject their code into what we're doing. They showed up at Occupy, you know, they're in the Green Party, although primarily anarcho-communists, you know, they're in the Libertarian Party, they're a major force in that party, um, you know, and I think that they believe that eventually there'll be this, you know, perfect utopian situation where everybody just behaves well. And you know, at the end of the day, the resource-based economy model advocated by Jacques Fresco is technically 
you know, could be determined, you know, could be shown as a, a form of anarchy, but you have to address the very real uh, behavioral patterns of human beings before you can just shut off any form of authority. And that's the part that I think that, you know, in addition to the fact that, um, oh, it looks like our caller might have called back in, but in addition to the fact that um, we, we don't just have to get rid of authority and then everything magically gets better, we have to make sure that people, you know, are ready for that change and are mature enough. And frequently what I've often found is that the people who usually are the loudest about wanting to get rid of any authority are the personality types that you see enter a group and just kind of assume the alpha male or alpha female role. And the reason that they don't want any legitimate authority is because they want to be in charge, you know, and is it going to be directly necessarily? Is it going to be like through any kind of legislation? No, it's not. It's just because they're a forceful personality who doesn't want to be told what to do by anybody else and wants to be able to tell everybody else what to do. And I experienced that frequently, you know, like um, there was a lady, I don't know if you remember, Danette Wallace, but she was one of the biggest advocates against any authority within the zeitgeist movement, you know, as far as moderation and things like that. And whenever I was in a conversation with her involved on TS3, she would be doing most of the talking and she would kind of be directing everybody, you know,'s thoughts and feelings on things. I'm like, well, no wonder she doesn't like authority. She wants to be in charge. You know, she doesn't want her Say that again. She does not want hers challenged. They don't want their authority challenged because, like you said, they've got the biggest personality in the room, and that's the way they like it. Right, and they're used to being able to take charge of things without any form of legislation, just by sheer force of personality. The other ones that I encounter was like, um, you know, the. I remember a man that uh, my ex-wife became involved in, you know, that we met in the Libertarian Party, and he was an anarchist. And, you know, she basically, you know, went and stayed with him for a while, and he brutally abused her. And he was an extreme advocate for, you know, anarchist thinking. And I realized pretty clearly after she told me the story of what went on was that the reality is this guy doesn't like cops. And he doesn't like authority because he wants to be free to brutalize and attack people without any repercussions or consequences you know and the other group the, the uh, you know group of people i run into i remember like for example i was on storm clouds gathering show once and there was a guy named christopher cantwell and christopher cantwell used to be a big um anarcho-capitalist thinker and i remember the way he would talk to people he was just he was very nasty to people and i'm like you know i'm sorry dude but uh your personality doesn't really lend me to believe that I should be in any kind of anarchist society with somebody like you as my neighbor, because I don't believe that you would peaceful, you know, the non-aggression principle guy. I would actually don't trust you at all, you know? And then surprisingly now, years later, I joked with Michael Shanklin about this because he's one of the few anarcho capitalists I still talk to was that, yeah, look how that guy turned out. Cause Christopher Cantwell joined like the white supremacist movement. He's literally a skinhead, like, you know, and now he's he advocates forcefully removing, you know, people of other races from the country. You know, at the end of the day, that's the kind of personality type that he was underneath, you know, all the layers. You know, and not all the anarchists are like this. You know, like I remember during the Libertarian Convention, there was a lady named Mary Ruart. And she was a very sweet, nice, passive person. And I, you know, I honestly believe that, you know, if she was my neighbor in anarchist society, I'd probably be fine. The problem is, is that you know, the, the value shift that would need to happen for that to ever be possible has to be addressed first. And that's why Fresco said, 
you can't just build these cities and stick normal people as we see them now in there with their current ways of thinking, their current, um, you know, views and their current uh, values in particular, you know, especially with social stratification would have to be gone. Uh, materialism would have to be gone. You know, that kind of stuff has to all be addressed before you can move forward. You know, and that's why, you know, when it comes to certain circumstances now, for example, there's a lot of uh, activism against police. And I, I understand that people are concerned about police brutality. I do. But I grew up in a bad neighborhood. And I know what it's like to live in a society when there's no police, you know, or rather a very long response time. If you called the police where I grew up for a violent situation, it may take them as long as two hours to arrive. And things don't just magically turn peaceful because you get rid of authority figures. It, it completely changes everything because what ends up happening actually, is whoever's actually, willing to be violent is in charge. Yeah, actually, the, the historical evidence is quite the contrary. Whenever there's a power vacuum, somebody usually negative fills it. And that is historically repeated over and over again. If there's a power vacuum, it's usually somebody negative. I think some of the best anarchists on the planet are authoritarians because they're the ones who can basically squash the system and just everybody do what I say, and that's pretty much it. It's kind of a, a weird irony, I think, in the, in the mental thought process of, of an anarchist. Uh, you know, I... Rule of law is one of the cornerstone foundations of the advancement of human civilization and our ability to get along better. Better being the operative word, not perfectly. It constantly requires refinement. And I think that's, that's one of the things. People have become intellectually and socially lazy, not necessarily on purpose. I'm not saying it's just a bunch of lazy people. We have a socioeconomic model that drives people into a very small lane and a very uh, clockwork way of living every single day where there isn't a whole lot of time to challenge the system. So they just can't. So they don't. Right. So they, right. For, for, lack of a better, for lack of a better term, they are, quote, unquote, lazy with engagement simply because they're just too tired to do it. They can't. There's a daily grind, going to work, dealing with the kids, blah, 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 all that has pigeonholed their life, and, and a lot of people are recognizing this during this COVID scenario, now that we have a lot more free time, how much of their day is spent doing bullshit? Right. And then they get to look around at the world and say, wow, the air has actually gotten pretty, a lot cleaner around here um, <laughs> since we all slowed right. down a little bit, you know, um, stuff like that. So um, the – I forgot where I was going with that, dude. I totally just lost it. <laughs> it's okay. No, I, I think you said a lot of valuable stuff there. I think you're right. When it, when it comes to the fact, that, that comes back to what I was saying about Fresco saying that you need a collapse to get people to really examine what's going on. It kind of reminds me of that, the network rant where he's like saying, you know, please just leave us alone in our living rooms. You know, let me have my toaster oven, my steel belted radials, you know, and he's like, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. So um, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and try again with this caller at 207. They call back in. Um, caller at the 207 area code, you're on the air. Hello, am I audible now? Yeah, you're audible now. Go Hello? ahead. All right, all right. This is uh, Aaron Frost. I, I know Doug. Uh, he's actually the one who got me, who introduced me to the Zeitgeist Movement years ago, and I've been working on 
coordinating the Florida chapter down here in Florida for a little while, and I've been enjoying listening to both of you so far. Um, I think I've really appreciated what you had to say. I wanted to throw in something from the conversation earlier about voting systems and arrival at decisions and all that. Um, I'm definitely an advocate of ranked choice voting. I've been working with the Green Party here in Florida to try to get that implemented so that uh, we're not spoiling elections or anything like that. Uh, but I also like another idea that's sometimes called delegative democracy or liquid democracy. And I've been thinking about how that might hybridize with ranked choice voting. And it's just something I like to uh, advocate and talk about and hope that maybe some solutions in that direction may someday uh, be a better way of arriving at science-based decisions with competent people. Uh, delegative or liquid democracy is where you delegate your vote to someone else who you think would be uh, more qualified in the given subject. And I feel like that would definitely be a really good way of getting the decisions in the hands of researchers and scientists and experts and people who are qualified and actually know what they're talking about more than maybe a direct democracy that would perhaps give the vote to the masses and you end up with potentially a mob rule situation, which would not be ideal. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, you know, I, I like advocating some thoughtful hybrid of those ideas because of what you said earlier. I, I appreciated you saying it about the issue of stupidity, which does, you know, it can sound mean, but people's qualifications and education level are important. And we do need to be able to filter out bad ideas that are being put forward by people who mean well and believe what they're saying, but simply don't have the education or maybe the IQ or whatever the issue may be. If, if ideas are bad, we need a way of filtering that out. And I, I do think that's important. Um, you brought it up in the context of political parties, and I agreed with you wholeheartedly that often the people who jump into the third parties don't understand what they're getting into and don't understand how the system works. When I started with the Green Party about four years ago now, just after it was uh, too late to vote for Bernie, I said, well, if it's too late to vote for Bernie, maybe I'll try the Green Party. I got involved, quickly became the county treasurer, and a year later became the state treasurer. And even though I know that we're not going to be winning a presidential election right away, I feel like hopefully we can build up a better contender. The Green Party uses ranked choice voting. We've got ranked choice voting for our presidential primary going on right now. And I'm hoping that by investing a little bit of time and effort in the Green Party, maybe eventually we will have an alternative but uh, well, I appreciate what you let said. Me, um, um, don't be in a rush because, like, I'm not going to kick you off the show. It's just you're saying a lot of stuff, so I'd like to be able to respond yeah. to, like, each piece of it. <laughs> sure. um, you know, uh, trying to – because you made a lot of valid points that I would have would have liked to have answered earlier. But um, I, I think that what – okay, so, for example, when it comes to direct democracy, because I'm an advocate for it under the right circumstances – um, it has to do with the fact that you end up in a scenario when you have elected people who do your voting for you, the Congress, the Senate, um, in a 
in a capitalist system, you create a situation where the plutocrats run everything. Like um, there's actually a movement right now, and I feel terrible for forgetting about it, but uh, they actually have Jennifer Lawrence and Michael Douglas do presentations for them to get attention to it. But they pointed out that currently, yeah, represent us. they, They pointed out that currently statistics show that if an idea is extremely popular, like say Medicare for all, it has a 30% chance likelihood of passing. If an idea is extremely unpopular, it still has a 30% chance Same. likelihood of passing. As in, <laughs> the, what we think is completely irrelevant to them because they're all fixated on you know, their, what their donors want. And they're also, you know, and when we have these gerrymandered districts, you end up with these crazy situations. Like here in Michigan, we have a Democrat governor and she got elected, you know, defeating the Republican, especially after what went on in Flint. I didn't see any Republican governor ever getting elected here, at least not immediately afterwards. Um, but then we have a legislature that is utterly dominated by Republicans because of gerrymandering. Um, you know, that, that's, you know, they're doing things to fix that, you know, but I think that at the end of the day, because I, I even got Fresco to agree to this and um, Peter Joseph at one point to some extent as well that the political system can at the very least be a circumstance in which you can spread awareness of ideas. So for example, Andrew Yang was not going to get nominated, but everybody's talking about universal basic income now because of him. And, you know, that's the net positive for him bothering to go through the trouble of trying to run for office, you know, is that he got those ideas exposed. It's the same thing when Ron Paul ran in 2008, people started talking about the federal reserve. People started talking about the Patriot act, the military commissions act, you know, um, when Dennis Kucinich ran, he was able to get a lot of exposure to just how bad Dick Cheney and George Bush really were, you know, so you don't always win. And I think that part of the problem that I found with a lot of people, not just in the third party system by any means, but a lot of young people getting involved in politics now is that they don't recognize that politics is a long game and elections yeah. are a battle within the larger war. In some cases, you're going to lose a battle, but that doesn't mean that the war is over. And unfortunately, that's, that's not how a lot of people look at it. If they lose an election, then they, they give up. But, you know, at the same time, you know, because I'm kind of coming at, coming at this from both directions as I'm currently in a, you know, a transitional phase myself, as far as how I feel about it, you know, there's also the issue that as long as we have this crazy monetary system controlling everything, it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to make any, you know, changes, you know, and in addition to that, you said you're in Florida. I don't know what congressional district you're in, but um, I have a friend, his name is Clint Curtis. He's currently a congressional candidate in the sixth district in Florida. And he is a um, election fraud expert. And, you know, you can listen to my previous broadcast with him. I had him on twice because unfortunately the the first broadcast I had him on uh, got interrupted by a glitch on blog talk side, but um, I would strongly urge you to support this guy because he's in Florida and he, some people right. might remember him. He testified before Congress about how easily the election machine, the voting machines are riggable. And the reason he knew was because he worked for a software company that was asked to write software to rig voting machines. And then he was asked to write software to facilitate gerrymandering. He's running for Congress as a progressive right now um, just to try to draw attention to these issues. And he would like to be elected because he wants to introduce legislation to fix the election fraud issue. Um, yeah. You know, so, yeah. you know, that's, you know, you've made a lot of good points. Um, Doug, do you want to chime in on anything he said? 
yeah, a couple of things. Uh, you know, going back to uh, people who move the needle or at least get the message out there, let's not forget Bernie and Medicare for all. You want to talk about taking the, uh, the, the, the Democratic centrist and then kind of really his policy positions have, have moved the Democratic Party a little more to the left, a little more progressive. Now, granted, we've thrown up Biden out there, so what the fuck. But anyway, <laughs> right. but, uh, you know, you still, there's still a national conversation about those policies, uh, and, and that's, like you said, getting the messaging out there. Uh, first thing I want to say is, hey, Aaron, what's up, dude? You know, long time no see. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I think um, going to the ranked choice voting uh, conversation, I think it's very much going to follow on the same kind of lines as uh, marijuana reform as far as it wasn't a big national policy to where the entire country started to change its marijuana laws. It was one state doing it, then another state does it, then another state does it, and now you've got herd mentality where everybody wants to play follow the leader if they see benefits from it. And now we're really getting close to a point where I believe not in the not-too-distant future, cannabis is going to be taken off of being a Schedule One, and it's just going to be nationally legalized. Um, Let me interrupt and, and really gonna... quickly to point something out, um, you know, especially to Aaron. By the way, Aaron, the majority of the legalization of marijuana that has taken place was by direct referendum, direct democracy, ballot initiatives. Just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> Go yep, ahead, thanks. Yeah. So, so you know, but I think the same thing can happen with ranked choice voting. If we can get towns and cities to do to switch over to ranked choice for smaller elections and then graduate that up, kind of like what Maine has done, the state of Maine. Uh, we get one state to do it and then do it for their national elections and kind of move that around. Since everybody's so big on states' rights. Let's let the states start starting a campaign to really push ranked choice voting as the alternative way of electing, and then you will eventually get the whole nation, I think, to flip uh, to a better way of electing. Uh, as for, uh, Aaron, you were talking about uh, uh, liquid democracy or, or delegative where you kind of appoint somebody. I think we kind of already have that in a way when you look at – the persons that we that are put in charge of different departments, you know, Department of Health, Department of Transportation, et cetera, the people that are put yep. in those positions are not necessarily John Q. Schmuck from the street. They're usually Ph.D. level, lots of experience in that <clears throat> particular given field, and then the mayor or the governor or whatever leans on them for their – if it's a good – if it's a good mayor or a good governor, let's put that caveat out there. If they're an idiot and they want to do everything on their own, then that's something else. But a good uh, higher level political official, public servant will take their input on board when it comes to what should be done to tackle X, Y, or Z problem, because they are the subject matter experts. So I think we already have that. I don't, here's my, my only my concern with the delegative idea is that some uh, somebody appoints their cousin Bob because you know to work on agriculture because he has a cool looking garden. You know, I mean, I'm really going hyperbolic with it, obviously, but um, just because they're appointing somebody doesn't necessarily mean that who they're appointing is worth a damn. 
<laughs> so there needs to be a vetting process, and I think that's where appointments come in or even running – I mean, for example, uh, attorney generals, uh, if, you know, those are um, – uh, uh, not attorney generals um, – Oh, I'm having a brain fart. There is a office that is voted on by the people. Uh, that's not mayor or governor, but there's um, solicitor generals and things like that that are voted on. Unfortunately, most people don't even pay attention to down ballot voting. They don't really look at their real local officials uh, very well. Uh, it'd be nice if we had a stronger campaign to get the public more in tune with the local people that are running for their everyday life kind of stuff. That'd be nice. Sheriffs are elected, too. I keep bringing that up, and I, I point out yep. specifically to the activist groups that are concerned about police brutality. You know, it's like if Black Lives Matter wants to affect policing, maybe they should consider getting involved with their local sheriff elections, finding people that are friendly to their thoughts, because there are police officers, you know, that are, you know, that are supportive, you know, and that you should elect those people as your sheriff. Make a, you know, participate in that part of the system. The sheriff has an enormous amount of authority over law enforcement, and it's basically just completely ignored. You know, people don't even know who their sheriffs are when they're voting on ballot. You know, it, they, they just kind of it, maybe sometimes they know who they are, but by and large, there really isn't any activity in that regard. And, it, and it's kind of a low hanging fruit, too. You can change a lot, you know, by being involved with that and um, in even just having an active campaign. If you could imagine all these people that are doing Black Lives Matter rallies now, there's a lot of people involved in that. You know, if those people then went out and turned and got involved in the sheriff election and elected sheriffs who were harder on police brutality, you know, that would make a very real cognitive, immediate, you know, answer to the problems that they're looking for, at least, you know, uh, certainly an improvement. Um, so, okay, so, yeah. Aaron, go ahead. Um, go ahead, Doug. Doug did yeah, you there's one other, thing, you know, one other thing you were saying about uh, how politics is a slow process. I, I've come up with this funny way of saying that, unfortunately, a lot of activists are violent Beauregards. They want it now. They want whatever change they want immediately now. And it doesn't work that way. <laughs> if you want something now, that's what authoritarianism is. Authoritarianism is great if you have a benevolent dictator because they can literally just make it happen now. The caveat to that is usually there's more stick than carrot from an authoritarian way of doing things where if you don't do it the way they want it done now – there are serious ramifications for disobedience. So if you actually want to change things in a way that's more carrot-driven, that's where politics comes in. That's where nonviolent political engagement and discourse changes policies and laws to affect greater good change. It just takes a little while. But we have too many violent Beauregards who want everything now, and they don't want to engage in the process because they're already self-defeatist from the get-go. So, okay, so Aaron, was there anything else you wanted to add? Um, I, we covered a lot. Thanks a lot. I, I want to just signal boost and repeat one thing you mentioned earlier. You, you brought up represent us, and I just want to advocate that as well to any um, advocates of the Venus Project and Zeitgeist Movement and RBE. If you're looking for something that you can do now to move the needle in the near term, I definitely advocate representatives. They're trying to introduce a bill against corruption that would make a big difference in the right direction. They're advocating ranked choice voting. I'm, I'm 
uh, coordinating the local Palm Beach County chapter of Represent Us. It's one of the, the three organizations that I'm trying, excuse me, to invest myself in are um, the RBE movement with Venus Project and TVP. Um, then other is the Green Party. And the third one that I do really like to spend what time I can on is Represent Us, because I think they're, they're nonpartisan, but they're trying to move the needle in the right direction. And they're working on what we can do now. You know, the Venus Project and Zeitgeist Movement is great about the ultimate goal in the far future, um, but it doesn't have a lot of answers on, on what we can do right now. Um, that are that are easy to understand at least. It's the train of thought can be difficult for some people, but represent uh, us is doing some good things. With what you're talking about, um, was that the Green Party and the Zeitgeist Movement? I think you guys have kind of uh, we've missed a opportunity here because I was involved in the exploratory yeah. committee to get Jesse Ventura nominated for the Green Party, and I think the Zeitgeist Movement didn't really realize this, but Jesse Ventura had Peter Joseph on his show and so you know discussed with him the resource-based economy model and jesse was completely into the idea and he said that if he wow. ever got elected that he would um he would appoint peter joseph as one of his cabinet um you know and oh. it's unfortunate you know it's like so now you've had this opportunity to do something that would have been great unfortunately yeah. ironically the capitalist system is one of the reasons why jesse ventura cannot actively campaign for the green party nomination because he can't give up his job and his health care because there's a health concern in his family. And, you know, but if that was an example of it, it would have been great if I could have motivated Zeitgeist Movement members to be involved in the Green Party to get Jesse Ventura nominated. Because even if he didn't win, he would have drawn a lot of attention to a lot of these ideas that, you know, that we want to get out there. So just something to think about, Aaron, you know, as you engage with the Green Party that they, you know, I my experience with them more or less has been very negative, unfortunately, that, um, you have a lot of people in that party that are essentially like LARPing or, you know, like pretending yep. to be, you know, like they're doing something big and they, they support these candidates that have like no electability at all. And I guess uh -huh. it makes them feel good, but it it's not accomplishing yeah. anything. You know, yeah. the, the front runner of the Green Party right now is a guy named Howie Hawkins, and he posted a, a happy birthday picture of Karl Marx in green with his campaign logo on it. And, you know, I don't even hate Karl Marx, but that's just, you can't do that. That's like sheer electoral incompetence, you know, and, <laughs> but you can't discuss that with those people. You know, I actually worked on campaigns and that's not shooting yourself in the foot. That's shooting yourself in the head. But, you know, yeah. thanks again for calling in, Aaron. Did you have any parting comments? That, that was it. Thanks so much for everything you do. And I look forward to working together with guys like you in the future. No problem. Appreciate it. So, um, right, yep. So Doug, um, that brings me to, uh, the, uh, one of the major points of like having this particular episode, which was to say, you know, so if we were in a resource-based economy model, and I know like you've, you've talked about your problems with the, with the term, but you know, if we were in, you know, as Jacques Fresco envisioned, you know, the cities are set up and everything, you know, how does something like COVID-19 get addressed? And I think the first thing that changes everything is that we wouldn't be scrambling to figure out how to take care of everybody. You know, that that's the biggest part that's kind of silly right now is that, you know, there's no way for the traditional capitalist system to take care of everybody in a situation where people can't work because it's dangerous. 
you know, um, that problem, first of all, goes away immediately because everybody's provided for scientifically. The next major difference is that, you know, um, when we talk about like, what, you know, something that Aaron pointed out that is legitimate, you know, that I've, I feel the same way. You know, like you take, for example, a lot of our elected officials now have no qualifications. They're supposed to be theoretically, you know, trying to find people who do to help them make decisions. But that doesn't always happen. And that's how you end up with these bizarre conversations with Donald Trump, you know, discussing, you know, injecting bleach or whatever, you know. And it, then there's the question of like, you know, they, they don't like Dr. Fauci. They don't like that other doctor whose name is escaping me, the, the, the woman blonde hair who's often up there too and you can see the looks on their faces frequently when donald trump is talking like oh my god did he just say that you know so um fresco would just advise that you know it's actually something that bernie sanders said was that if he were president scientists would be determining how we react to this pandemic not politicians i was like well that sounds very familiar that sounds an awful lot like something fresco would have said you know and go ahead well, that's what was that? It's common sense. That's why. Um, the, uh, the idea information in the RBE system would be so readily available. We have the capacity today. And the funny thing is, is none of this is special stuff that needs to be invented. There are algorithms that exist that track things around the world all the time. The DOD, the Department of Defense, you know, has tracking mechanisms in place. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You're a little quiet, but I can hear you. All right. Uh, The DOD has tracking mechanisms in place for monitoring the movement of nuclear materials. And I guarantee that they know really fast when something is amiss. So let's apply the same logic towards viral outbreaks to where you would have monitoring stations around the world, open lines of communication for epidemiologists and disease control experts to keep up on this, daily reports all the time, sit, sit room, you know, situation room reports that would let anybody know the moment something popped up. And then everybody in the world at the same time, speed of light communication, would know what's going on, where it popped up, where the first signs were, and all that information would be transparent and open. You would be able to tackle issues, viral issues, in a heartbeat with a system like that. That is what the RBE philosophy is all about when it comes to operating global resources and human interactions. It's allowing us to have open, transparent communication on the best practices for creating energy, for managing transportation, for moving goods and services. All of those things are globally open and transparent, not competitive, hyper-competitive, intellectual property, hide and conceal, hide and conceal, hide and conceal to get that differential advantage. It's open source sharing. Here's everything that we know. Let's all work together to maximize and make the most efficient means of tackling a problem if and when it pops up. And it will. Even in an RBE, viral outbreaks are going to happen. History, it's biology. Nature's funny. I don't care, you know, what we come up with. Nature finds a way, you know, Jeff Goldblum, Jurassic Park. 
nature right. finds a way, you know, to do what nature wants to do. And as long as we are ready for it and we are openly sharing our information and resources for those particular things, you know, I think that's what an, or, an institution like the World Health Organization, that is what people who wanted that to be made were hoping would happen. You know, something like that. The, the, all the world would come together and talk about health and human wellness and how all of us would work together. The problem is we have a global economic model, the sheer opposite of that. And Absolutely. so they are, they are incongruent. You cannot have global sharing of those things while at the same time people trying to hoard and monopolize and manipulate that same information for profit and differential advantage. They don't work together. Incompatible. And so something's got to go. And I would like to think that most people would rather have a world where something like this viral pandemic can be noticed, tackled, and addressed in days instead of having it spread around the world in less than a month and wreak havoc on our daily lives. I now extrapolate that to all the other industries that we have and how much more how much more better good. <laughs> Everything, <laughs> as my dad would say, redneck Texan funny terms, how much more better good life would be if our transportation systems and our power systems and all of those things follow the same philosophy. Well, yeah, and, that's, and also just uh, the idea of people not, like you pointed out, the not, you know, not competitive. That's really important in a lot of ways because we also are in a situation where countries' relationships with each other are also affecting how things are going. Like people are talking about the sanctions in Iran being a serious problem for them in the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, there are going to be people who don't like Iran who are going to change the way they treat that country and what resources they need, you know, and what information they give them you know, you know, accordingly. And obviously the, the relationship between China and the United States is not, is not ideal. So there's a motivation to, you know, filter essentially what information is given out to people, um, you know, and also to have, you know, a, a motive to paint, you know, different groups of people in a negative light or positive light as the case may be, depending on what your political needs are, you know, how much did China know? Is it China's fault? Is it Trump's fault for not reacting sooner? Is it this? Is it that? You know, instead of spending so much energy on all of that nonsense, we would instead be spending energy on how do we solve the problem, right? You know, with, you know, scientific models, you know, and the other thing is, is you know, when we talk about it's, it's hard to you know, emphasize this enough is that in the economic model that would be presented, you wouldn't have all of these forces that are currently manipulating the situation to benefit themselves that we do right now because there wouldn't be this small group of elites who are trying to figure out how best to profit from the situation you know like right now for example uh you know donald trump rather than going ahead and using the defense production act for what it was intended and ordering these companies to do things these companies are pleading with him to say no no, no we got this just let us handle it you know private sector is stepping up, of course, to do its part is the way they're framing it. When the reality is, is the private sector is looking at how best to increase our bottom line, you know, um, 
And inevitably, you know, there's going to be corners that will be cut for profit. There's going to be, you know, uh, price manipulation. How can we make this, you know, this circumstance better for us uh, rather than for it actually just being what would necessarily be the best solution overall? You know, how do you actually treat these issues, you know, in some way that would be the most efficient? You know, that efficiency and profit are not necessarily related. And in fact, some kind, some in most cases, they're they're diametrically opposed to each other. Um, you know, so that that's the major difference, and that's why I said, you know, it's I didn't even have to worry about it until we we're down to like the last half hour of the show. Is that it, it's kind of uneventful because something like this would be such a minor problem in that society in comparison to the way it is now. Um, there was one thing I wanted to point out that kind of goes back to what we were discussing with Aaron in regards to long-term effects of politics is that, you know, when I was researching the progressive party formed by Teddy Roosevelt, the platform of the progressive party at the time in 1912 was considered extremely radical. Uh, Women's suffrage was part of it. For example, women couldn't even vote yet, I believe. Um, And they had a prominent feminist at the time involved in the progressive party. And um, all of the platform of the progressive party of 1912 mirrors Bernie Sanders platform now. Um, but yeah. it took that long for those changes to happen, but they did happen. So we may literally be having this conversation and it may affect the lives of not our children, but our great, great grandchildren. I guess my only concern with that, the, the one time scale issue that uh, unfortunately we don't have a lot of time to wait on is climate change. Yeah, and the yeah. planet the planet is going to smack us upside the face so hard if we don't change some key things real fast. And, you know, back in 1912, it seemed like we had a lot of time and we can have, you know, a hundred years to manifest some changes, but there are some changes that are on our doorstep right now that do need to be changed a lot quicker if we're going to, mitigate the the deleterious effects of climate change. So, and I, I have no interest whatsoever in even listening to a single word from a climate change denier. Um, to me, they are the epitome of irrelevant blowhards. Um, we really need to do everything we can to make sure that we don't destroy the one and only home we have as a species. If nothing else, for the ultimate selfish reason of making sure we don't kill ourselves. But, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands and millions of other species that share this planet with us would kind of like to have that, too. Well, no, and I agree with you that there are still going to be things that need to be changed immediately. I think, unfortunately, following current trends, uh, we're in a situation where very much like this pandemic the the wealthy elite are not going to look at this until it directly affects them. They're not going to care about it until one of their offshore properties is swallowed up by the ocean. You know, um, that's basically is what I think is that until it's affecting them, they're not going to look at it. And I don't like that, but I, the, the positive silver lining of that situation comes back to what Fresco said about, you know, it takes those kinds of things in order to make, you know, people start thinking is that, if we get to the point where it's evident that the wealthy elite who essentially control everything we do directly or indirectly um, made that decision 
and did serious damage to the planet, that I think that that will wake a lot of people up to the idea that this needs to be addressed. And I'm sure, unfortunately, a lot of damage is going to be done in that time. And don't get me wrong, this is not how I want it. This is not what I would like. Um, you know, but it's it's a situation that I think is similar to so many other things is that, you know, is that people don't really look at it until it's it's in their living room. And I unfortunately believe that, you know, the way our current system is set up, you know, that's going to continue. I mean, we've seen some changes like, you know, the environmental movements point out that, um, we you know, we fixed the ozone layer problem. Like the ozone layer has actually healed itself and, you know. That was an example of something that we put out there that we were able to get the public consciousness to embrace and change their attitude about. You know, I, I you know, when you said that you don't listen to climate change deniers because they're irrelevant, um, or uh, I, I unfortunately they're not irrelevant. They're definitely wrong. They have so much power politically, and that's the same thing. Actually, the effect that you're seeing right now with this COVID-19 thing is that there there are people who can't accept it because it affects their bottom line, so they're just calling it a hoax. And it's the same thing here with climate change is that they don't want to believe that they're going to live in a world where, um, you know, where they have to change their behavior when it comes to fossil fuels because that bothers their bottom line. So they just want to try to say, well, it's just not true because they can't accept it. And my point, my point was, go ahead. My, my point was that I, I don't like, I don't want to engage them. Like I have no interest in debating or discussing with them because I've done enough that, you know, they always come back with the same vacuous comments and they don't move the needle. They don't provide any kind of moving forward thought process. Um, and so that's what I mean is I don't engage with those people anymore. Well, yeah, it's like talking to flat earthers. You know, it's exactly. you, you get to same a point thing. where you can't yeah. talk to them anymore. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think now we've gotten to the point to where the evidence is pretty, pretty soft. But even <laughs> – my caveat to that has always been fine, whatever. Let's pretend for a moment that climate change is not real. Let's go down in this imaginary world. We have two choices. We work to make sure that the planet is as clean and healthy as possible, or we don't. Which one would you choose? It's, right. it's that simple. I mean, why would you not want to implement every policy possible to ensure that the planet we live on is as taken care of as possible? Yeah, there really is no downside to it. That That's, you know, and there are other things that are caused, like they've been established to have been caused by that kind of pollution. Like I remember years ago pointing out that acid rain, you know, is a consequence of the kinds of industrial pollution that people believe contributes to climate change. You know, less acid rain would certainly be good. <laughs> you know, well, well, um, yeah, one would think, one would think. Well, right. You know, and that's, go ahead. There's, there's, there's some CEO somewhere who has to make a decision for shareholders that has that can't he or she cannot think about the environment. They cannot think about the village that might be destroyed downriver from their plant. They can't think about that. The only thing they can think about is whether or not they're going to make the target that some Wall Street schmuck threw out there that their company is supposed to meet. And if they don't, then the shareholders lose their minds, their stock goes down, they lose a bunch of money, and they get fired. That's the well, only right. thing That's, they I wish about. that shareholders could look at things from the perspective of long-term profits, as in, is the planet going to be inhabitable? <laughs> yeah, I, I, think that, I think the best return on anyone's investment is making sure that the planet survives. Right, because we can't spend money if we don't have anywhere to live. You know, that's... um. 
uh, that was another thing actually that occurred to me is there's a lot of ripples going through the world right now of activism, particularly about environmentalism because of the recent film um, put out by the guy who did Gasland. And I guess Michael Moore was involved in it too. And what I was getting, people have been asking me what I think about it. And I talked to you about a little bit about this, but um, pointing out, they just basically talked about wind and solar through the entire film. And they didn't talk about wave power. Uh, they, they mentioned hydroelectric very briefly they didn't talk about uh, geothermal power, which is supposed to be the most powerful of all of these. Um, you know, and my suggestion has always been that we need like a Manhattan Project level of, you know, intense resource expenditure for the purpose of solving the energy crisis, and that we need to be looking at it, you know, in a way that's holistic as possible, that's you know, that's environmentally sound as possible. And it was interesting to me that this film. You know, I mean, one of the major things about the film was just that we were going to have to change our lifestyle. And that's true. Even if you are using electric and solar, you have to do that. You know, but it's it's also that we're, we're not they, they just completely left geothermal off the table. And I'd be interested to talk to them. And I've reached out to the filmmaker, you know, because I've had a lot of filmmakers on my show specifically to discuss this. But there were versions of power that weren't even being discussed at all. Um, I'm willing to acknowledge that they pointed out that there are definitely a lot of environmental problems that go along, for example, with the manufacture of solar panels. That's true. Um, there are problems that involved, uh, basically involved with uh, setting up the wind turbines, too. They're all based on limited resources, and they have limited lifespans. And it's not to say that a geothermal plant wouldn't also have that effect. Um, it would. Um, and then there's another pushback that's going on in the environmental world is that they're trying to push harder on being pro-nuclear. And I, I don't know, maybe part of it is that because I'm a child of the, the Cold War, but nuclear power in general, you know, creeps me out. Um, I know that there are safer ways to do it, obviously, but it just, it seems to me like if we could get geothermal going, you know, we wouldn't even need something where we have to inevitably figure out some way to dispose of the waste product, you know, um, which is what we end up well, in a scenario with doing it nuclear. Go ahead, Doug. I understand, I understand what you mean by that. I, I'm, I... I used to be super anti-nuclear, and then if you do a little research on next-generation nuclear reactors and you look at how different they are, uh, does that mean they're great? No, but I look at it this way. If I'm going to advocate the scientific method for the advancement of society, then I have to acknowledge that if we can come up with better ways to do nuclear power, why would we not do that? Now, I'm not necessarily saying that we're there yet. I don't know enough about next-gen reactors to make, an, uh, to make a statement on it. It would be irresponsible of me because I don't know the numbers. But to completely throw it off the table and not at least acknowledge advancing research and trying to make it better, or if we could go from you know fusion to fission or whatever, uh, then you know why, why would we not? But you're right about, you know, a lot of clean energy options that seem to be constantly left off the table. I remember that cute little video that I made once called Our Technical Reality uh, that I threw up online uh, many years ago. And the, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the whole first section was all clean energy related. And it talked about solar, wind, wave, tidal, geothermal, and OTEC, O-T-E-C, which is Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion. Um, so 
there are way more than just one or two options when it comes sure. to clean energy solutions. And, you know, different options are going to be better in different geographies. So a, a, um, an analysis should be done. Okay, here's this region. Which one of these five would be best, the top one and two and three? Now let's figure out where we can distribute that so that the entire region can be powered accordingly. And that's it. That's how we do it. But, you know, what are we going to do? Throw solar panels up everywhere? Well, you don't have to. If you get a place that has a lot of wave activity, then you can generate a lot of wave power. Waves are going to go in and waves are going to go out. And that one, uh, what was that one guy who said that? Tides going to come in? The tides are going to go out? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so uh, if if we focused on using all of our resources, the planet generates a lot of power that we can utilize or has the potential to generate a lot of power that we could utilize. So it is disappointing that this documentary, I'm really having a hard time with a lot of these documentaries these days because there's so much nonsense being thrown out there. Uh, everybody has access to a camera and can interview a couple of people. That doesn't make it a credible damn documentary. And I almost sure. don't care who's financing it or who's in it or behind it. Michael Moore did this. Michael Moore has his own baggage. Just because it's yeah, Michael he Moore does. doesn't, mean it's, doesn't mean it's fantastic. So, you know, I'm kind of tired with, you know, all of these documentaries. I'd much rather read research papers on a given subject and see what the consensus is in the proper circles for certain things. And then, and then the problem is scientists – are not good public speakers to the average citizen. They are sure. really good at academic conferences. They are at talking to their peers, but they are not very good at getting John Q. Public to understand what the hell they're talking about, what the current situation is, where we are, and where we could be in the near future. And what, we, what would be great is to cultivate, train, and teach scientific minds to hone their public speaking and information delivery skills. Basically, their political skills, because that's what politics is. Politics is the debate and discussion of ideas to affect change for policy. And so it's talking. It's a lot of talking and going back and forth. Now, hopefully, the talking is done from an informed position based on relevant science and information that informs the debate. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't do that. They blow smoke out of their ass. Right, they or they get emotionally about. attached to a position, and that emotional attachment becomes more important than any validity to that position. Exactly. That's, a, that's kind of like – that's the same thing with the nuclear thing. Some people are so anti-nuclear that even if they did come out with a third-generation nuclear reactor that reused the waste over and over again to where it got to be the size of a pebble – they might still say, no, fuck nuclear. And it's like, dude, right. it's about a billion times better than it ever was. And it's going to have squat for footprint. And it's going to create a massive amount of power. My concern with nuclear is actually from a national security perspective. Right. Is that it's a, it's a centralized location for power creation. And that's got target written all over it. Whereas a decentralized distributed grid system of all of those five forms of clean energy, wind, wave, tidal, solar, power, geothermal, et cetera, if we had a distributed grid 
Now there is no singular source to attack. There's no singular source for a problem. And not just attacked by people, but attacked by nature. If we have a hurricane, if we have an earthquake, if we've got something that knocks out a central power station, an entire neighborhood or region can go dark. But if you had a distributed grid system and nature had a temper tantrum for a moment, you're not going to lose an entire city. You're going to lose just the area of effect. So well, that's and the concerns about nuclear also that you know, even just like if you're not concerned about it being a target, like you said, Bermuda nature, I mean, you take the Fukushima disaster, you know, that's yep. a tsunami. Nobody planned for yep. that. You know, yep. um, and that's that's an example of why it kind of creeps me out. Now, if we had another way of dealing with it, you know, like if we could actually research it in such a way to be, you know, to have ecological concerns at the top, I'd be willing to look at it again. I just I keep thinking back to the the pictures that Jock had of literally creating geothermal plants and attaching them to volcanoes. You know, I don't know how viable that is any time in the near future, but we do have like I had a guy on my show a long time ago. I should actually check into him. But he had a geothermal system called the power tube where um, you were able to basically get geothermal energy out of a much less volatile, you know, uh, system and be able to power cities, you know, with that. And it wouldn't even have like the footprint of it on, on the surface is actually very small. You know, he pointed out that the, the facility that he would design uh, would not even like the, you would, the power plant itself wouldn't be any bigger than like an apartment complex. And then that would be it, you know, and then, the rest of it, you know, you know, you could generate a power that's always there, you know, rather than trying to create some kind of energy reaction on the surface or finding some way to try to tap into it that, you know, that there's always this thing going on in the earth and it'll be going on under, you know, our, you know under the earth for forever, you know. Um, and that's why I was like, why aren't we talking geothermal? Go ahead. As a, yeah, a couple of billion years at least. Right. So we have another caller. I've only got about 10 minutes left in the broadcast. Let me see if I can bring him on. Caller from the 708 area code. You are on the air. Caller from 708? Oh, no. Hello? 708? Okay. Well, never mind. That's okay. a bummer. Yeah, sometimes I just I end up taking too long to answer them. I think is part of the problem. So I'll get back to that. Um, well, there's ways also that I can screen callers, but if I was to do that, then you know I'd have to just say, "Hey, Doug, can you talk for about five minutes while I make sure that this person's legit?" That's why for the longest time I never took any. Um, I would take most of my callers through Skype because I could screen them that way. But um, you know, I can monologue for a couple of minutes while you screen a call. That's easy. Yeah. I should just let you know that I'm going to do it. But um, anyway, so uh, it's been great having you on. Um, you know, we were talking about the state of the movement, and that's that's another thing about it that I, I think is unfortunate, although there is a new effort that people have brought to my attention uh, to try to revitalize the zeitgeist movement. Um, my recent interactions with the Venus Project, unfortunately, have been pretty cold, Um after Jacques passed away, you know, Roxanne still has people in her immediate group, but she's kind of bunkered up. Like, um, she and I used to talk regularly, like at least like once a week, you know, she would ask me about my family, my kids. And the last time I called her, you know, it seemed to me like she was kind of concerned about anybody who might've had any involvement with the zeitgeist movement. Like there was such a, um, 
you know, a need for them, you know, for her to protect herself from them or something. And she had a lot of negative things to say about Peter on Peter's side of things. You know, what's been brought to my attention is essentially he's kind of burned out and that he's trying to step away. Um, and I can't really blame the guy. Um, you know, he was by his own, you know, assessment, an introverted personality who didn't really want to be a public figure, but um, he was very good at presenting his ideas. He's an excellent talker. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I kind of regretted was like, man, this would have been a great opportunity to, you know, with this pandemic going on, because there are so many people that are looking for alternatives. You know, if he could get on Russia Today right now, you know, if he could get, you know, on any of the media outlets, if he could get back on Joe Rogan, you know, this would be a perfect time for somebody to do that um, and get, you know, some traction to these ideas. And, you know, I know that they're, they're hoping that there'll be, there are other people in the movement that are going to try to hopefully step up into that role. I think I agree with you about a lot of the problems that went, that went on, but in comparison, that's the other positive I would say is that for all the negatives that of the things that were happening in the zeitgeist movement, when you and I were involved in what I would call it Zenith, there were also a lot of positives, you know, that um, came out of it, especially the, the international chapters talking to each other and interacting and working together. I've never been part of anything that was as powerful as the zeitgeist movement was in that regard. Um, and a lot less, you know, for, for a lot of the drama that was present, which is inevitable just because of the sheer volume of people that were involved, there was also, um, you know, a lot of cooperation and, um, you know, a lot less pet issues. That was one of the things that I felt was kind of a, a threat to the movement was the, the over the top social justice warrior zealotry um, it didn't just cause a problem for the zeitgeist movement. It also caused a problem for the occupied movement. It's a problem on the left in general. It's a problem in the green party. And it, I guess from coming from the zeitgeist movement, I was kind of spoiled that, you know, we didn't really have that problem um, at least during that time period. And I think it was largely because there was an active stance on the part of the zeitgeist movement to not be spending energy on specifically feminist issues or specifically racial issues or, you know, and it's not because people didn't care about those issues. It's because they recognize that, you know, and that's actually the conversation I had with Fresco specifically about this topic when I went down to Florida was I said, so why is it that you don't feel that this is the right way to go about things? And he pointed out, he's like, well, from my experience, what you see is that people who get involved in activism specifically geared towards the benefit of one group, as opposed to humanity as a whole, inevitably end up in a situation where they start to only think of every issue from the perspective of that group of people. And that can happen in such a way that it can be detrimental to the group as a whole. And I didn't fully understand what he was talking about, you know, until I went to the Occupy Detroit movement and I watched as the social justice stuff basically disintegrated that movement's effectiveness because everybody divided up into, you know, well, where is your place in the oppression Olympics? You know, are you, this race, that race, are you this gender, that gender, or are you a different gender, or are you identifying as this, this, or that? And it just ended up being this enormous distraction because at that point we couldn't have meetings um, and talk to each other because as much as they said they were trying to destroy hierarchy, they just created a new one, which was if you happen to be listed as the most oppressed person, then you get to do all of the talking. And if you happen to be a straight white male, you better just shut up and let everybody else talk which also served to alienate a lot of people. Um, I, and in the early days of the Zeitgeist Movement, we didn't have to deal with that. Um, I mean, I don't know what your experiences have been with it, but I found that it's, 
it's been a big problem for the left-leaning people in general? I think, yes. I think extreme points of view, there's always a risk of extreme points of view on any given subject to uh, take a foothold into any movement or organization, which is why it is important to have a very solid organizational infrastructure so that you can weed that out. Now, I think one of the biggest problems, how do I say this in a nice way? One of the biggest problems is trying to make everybody happy. As if you're just going to put a smile on everybody's face, that everybody's issues are equal, that everybody gets equal time. No, that's not real life. That's not even how humans evolve, for crying out loud. That's not how this works. That's not how we think, and that's not how we operate. You're going to have to tell some people, you know what? The entire planet is not going to become vegan anytime soon, okay? <laughs> I, can appreciate, I can appreciate your love of animals. I can appreciate your personal health reasons. That doesn't mean you can extrapolate them to every human in the world. But for you as an individual and maybe your close circle, fine. Veganism is the way for you. But when you start attacking and demonizing and throwing shade on everybody else who doesn't see it your way, well, now you've got to go. Bye-bye. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. On the, right, the and that's, on the right. That's the exact conversations I was getting involved in was that people were saying, well, we can't have a resource based economy until we've addressed the oppression, for example, of people of color. And I would try to point out to them, I'm like, if we create a resource based economy, racism basically dissolves all on its own. It, we yeah, can't hold up one to get the other. Yeah, it's right, not a piecewise function. You're not going to like, you don't have to do, solve this problem first, then we'll solve this next problem second. Then we'll just, it doesn't, there's too many at once, first of all. We have way too many issues that can kind of need to be addressed simultaneously. The funny thing is, is that if we implement a more humane, ethical, and just system, operating system, you're right. Those issues will erode over time and go away. You can't well, right. just address one at a time. So, right. And that's because we have a systemic flaw. The systemic flaw creates all of these symptoms, and that's what we see, all these inequalities, racial inequality, social inequality, financial inequality, et cetera, et cetera, stems from the broken system. So you've got to change the system if you want to really have a massive long-term effect on all the symptoms. Right, exactly. So, so and, we're and down to the final the minute. Okay. Um, yeah, but yeah, so Doug, uh, it was great having you on, you know, we should do this again sometime in the near future. It was great talking to you. Um, and, uh, we also get an opportunity to, I mean, are you currently involved in any projects that people should be looking at while we have 40 seconds to talk about them? Uh, not real. We're moving back down to Florida. So I've got a lot of things on hold. I am going to start CFS back up as a design and consulting firm for sustainable aquaponic greenhouse systems, uh, kind of changing the way the company is going to go a little bit. Uh, going to try to ramp up my public speaking again so I can get on stage and deliver this kind of information in a fun and entertaining but informative kind of way. But I'm not going to be doing any of that until I get back down to Florida and kind of get resettled where we're going to be living and whatnot. And then I'm going to jump All back right. into that. So we can touch base on that in the future. 
All right. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning into this episode of V Radio. I look forward to talking to you guys in the future. And uh, Doug, I'll talk to you off the air. Right. Take care, everybody.